Chapter Three of Beverly of Graustark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Beverly of Graustark by George Barr McCutcheon. Chapter Three. On the road from Balak. A ponderous coach lumbered slowly almost painfully, along the narrow road that skirted the base of a mountain. It was drawn by four horses, and upon the seat sat two rough, unkempt Russians, one holding the reins, the other lying back in a lazy doze. The month was June, and all the world seemed soft and sweet and joyous. To the right flowed a turbulent mountain stream, boiling savagely with the alien waters of the flood season. Ahead of the creaking coach rode four horsemen, all heavily armed. Another quartet followed some distance in the rear. At the side of the coach, an officer of the Russian mounted police was riding easily, jangling his accoutrements with a vigor that disheartened at least one occupant of the vehicle. The windows of the coach doors were lowered, permitting the fresh mountain air to caress fondly the face of the young woman who tried to find comfort in one of the broad seats. Since early morn she had struggled with the hardships of that seat, and the late afternoon found her very much out of patience. The opposite seat was the resting place of a substantial collared woman, and a stupendous pile of bags and boxes. The boxes were continually toppling over, and the bags were forever getting under the seat of the once placid servant whose face, quite luckily, was much too black to reflect the anger she was able, otherwise, through years of practice, to conceal. "'How much farther have we to go, Lieutenant?' asked the girl in the rear seat, plaintively, even humbly. The man was very deliberate with his English. He had been recommended to her as the best linguist in the service, at Radovich, and he had a reputation to sustain. "'It is another hour, but yet—' he managed to inform her, with a confident smile. "'Oh, dear,' she sighed, "'a whole hour of this?' "'We soon be dar, Miss Beverly. "'Jest you make up your mind to rest easy-like, and we—' But the faithful old collared woman's advice was lost in the wrathful exclamation that accompanied another dislodgment of bags and boxes. The wheels of the coach had dropped suddenly into a deep rut. Aunt Fanny's growls were scarcely more potent than poor Miss Beverly's moans. "'It is getting worse and worse,' exclaimed Aunt Fanny's mistress petulantly. "'I'm black and blue from head to foot, aren't you, Aunt Fanny?' "'I can't say as to de blue, Miss Beverly. "'It's a most monstrous bad road, sure enough. "'Say up, dar, will you?' she concluded, jamming a bag into an upper corner. "'Miss Calhoun,' tourist extraordinary, again consulted the linguist in the saddle. She knew at the outset that the quest would be hopeless, but she could think of no better way to pass the next hour than to extract a mite of information from the officer. "'Now for a good old chat,' she said, beaming a smile upon the grizzled Russian. "'Is there a decent hotel in the village?' she asked. They were on the edge of the village before she succeeded in finding out all that she could and it was not a great deal, either. She learned that the town of Balag was in Axpain, scarcely a mile from the Graustark line, 
there was an eating and sleeping house on the main street, and the population of the place did not exceed three hundred. When Miss Beverly awoke the next morning, sore and distressed, she looked back upon the night with a horror that sleep had been kind enough to interrupt only at intervals. The wretched hostelry lives long in her secret catalogue of terrors. Her bed was not a bed. It was a torture. The room, the table, the— but it was all too odious for description. Fatigue was her only friend in that miserable hole. Aunt Fanny had slept on the floor near her mistress's cot, and it was the good old collared woman's grumbling that awoke Beverly. The sun was climbing up the mountains in the east, and there was an air of general activity about the place. Beverly's watch told her that it was past eight o'clock. "'Good gracious!' she exclaimed. "'It's nearly noon, Aunt Fanny.' Hurry along here and get me up. We must leave this abominable place in ten minutes. She was up and racing about excitedly. Before breakfast? demanded Aunt Fanny weakly. Goodness, Aunt Fanny, is that all you think about? Well, honey, you'll all be thinking mighty serious about breakfast long to it's eleven o'clock. That little tummy of yours'll be powerful mad cause you didn't. "'Very well, Aunt Fanny. You can run along and have the woman put up a breakfast for us, and we'll eat it on the road.' "'I positively refuse to eat another mouthful in that awful dining-room. I'll be down in ten minutes.' She was down in less. Sleep, no matter how hard-earned, had revived her spirits materially. She pronounced herself ready for anything. There was a wholesome disdain for the rigors of the coming ride through the mountains— in the way she gave orders from the start. The Russian officer met her just outside the entrance to the inn. He was less English than ever, but he eventually gave her to understand that he had secured permission to escort her as far as Ganluk, a town in Graustark, not more than fifteen miles from Edelweiss, and at least two days from Balak. Two competent Axphanian guides had been retained, and the party was quite ready to start. He had been warned of the presence of brigands in the wild mountainous passes north of Ganluk. The Russians could go no farther than Ganluk because of a royal edict from Edelweiss forbidding the nearer approach of armed forces. At that town, however, he was sure she could easily obtain an escort of Graustarkian soldiers. As the big coach crawled up the mountain road and further into the oppressive solitudes, Beverly Calhoun drew from the difficult lieutenant considerable information concerning the state of affairs in Graustark. She had been eagerly awaiting the time when something definite could be learned. Before leaving St. Petersburg, early in the week, she was assured that a state of war did not exist. The princess, Yative, had been in Edelweiss for six weeks. A formal demand was framed soon after her return from America, requiring Dalsbergen to surrender the person of Prince Gabriel to the authorities of Graustark. To this demand, there was no definite response, Dalsbergen insolently requesting time in which to consider the proposition. Axphain immediately sent an envoy to Edelweiss to say that all friendly relations between the two governments would cease unless Graustark took vigorous steps to recapture the royal assassin. On one side of the unhappy principality a strong, overbearing princess was egging Graustark on to fight, while on the other side 
an equally aggressive people, defied Yetive to come and take the fugitive if she could. The poor princess was between two ugly alternatives, and a struggle seemed inevitable. At Balak it was learned that Axphain had recently sent a final appeal to the government of Graustark, and it was no secret that something like a threat accompanied the message. Prince Gabriel was in complete control at Saros, and was disposed to laugh at the demands of his late captors. His half-brother, the dethroned Prince Danton, was still hiding in the fastnesses of the hills, protected by a small company of nobles, and there was no hope that he could ever regain his crown. Gabriel's power over the army was supreme. The general public admired Danton, but it was helpless in the face of circumstances. But why should Axphain seek to harass Graustark at this time? demanded Beverly Calhoun, in perplexity and wrath. I should think the brutes would try to help her. There is an element of opposition to the course the government is taking, the officer informed her in his own way, but it is greatly in the minority. The Axphanians have hated Graustark since the last war, and the princess despises this American. It is an open fact that the Duke of Mizrox leads the opposition to Princess Volga, and she is sure to have him beheaded if the chance affords. He is friendly to Graustark, and has been against the policy of his princess from the start. "'I'd like to hug the Duke of Mizrox,' cried Beverly warmly. The officer did not understand her, but Aunt Fanny was scandalized. "'Good Lord!' she muttered to the boxes and bags. As the coach rolled deeper and deeper into the rock-shadowed wilderness, Beverly Calhoun felt an undeniable sensation of awe creeping over her. The brave, impetuous girl had plunged gaily into the project which now led her into the deadliest of uncertainties, but with little thought of the consequences. The first stage of the journey by coach had been good fun. They had passed along pleasant roads, through quaint villages and among interesting people, and the progress had been rapid. The second stage had presented rather terrifying prospects, and the third day promised even greater vicissitudes. Looking from the coach windows out upon the quiet, desolate grandeur of her surroundings, poor Beverly began to appreciate how abjectly helpless and alone she was. Her companions were ugly, vicious-looking men, any one of whom could inspire terror by a look. She had entrusted herself to the care of these strange creatures in the moment of inspired courage, and now she was constrained to regret her action. True, they had proved worthy protectors as far as they had gone, but the very possibilities that lay in their power were appalling, now that she had time to consider the situation. The officer in charge had been recommended as a trusted servant of the Tsar. An American consul had secured the escort for her direct from the frontier patrol authorities. Men high in power had vouched for the integrity of the detachments, but all this was forgotten in the mighty solitude of the mountains. She was beginning to fear her escort more than she feared the brigands of the hills. Treachery seemed printed on their backs as they rode ahead of her. The big officer was ever polite and alert, but she was always ready to distrust him on the slightest excuse. These men could not help knowing 
that she was rich, and it was reasonable for them to suspect that she carried money and jewels with her. In her mind's eye, she could picture these traitors rifling her bags and boxes in some dark pass, and then there were other horrors that almost petrified her when she allowed herself to think of them. Here and there the travellers passed by rude cots where dwelt woodmen and mountaineers, and at long intervals a solitary, but picturesque, horseman stood aside and gave them the road. As the coach penetrated deeper into the gorge, signs of human life and activity became fewer. The sun could not send his light into this shadowy tomb of granite. The rattle of the wheels and the clatter of the horses' hoofs sounded like a constant crash of thunder in the ears of the tender traveller, a dainty morsel, among hawks and wolves. There was an unmistakable tremor in her voice when she at last found heart to ask the officer where they were to spend the night. It was far past noon, and Aunt Fanny had suggested opening the lunch baskets. One of the guides was called back, the leader being as much in the dark as his charge. There is no village within twenty miles, he said, and we must sleep in the pass. Beverly's voice faltered. Out here, in all this awful... Then she caught herself quickly. It came to her suddenly that she must not let these men see that she was apprehensive. Her voice was a trifle shrill, and her eyes glistened with a strange new light as she went on, changing her tack completely. How romantic! I've often wanted to do something like this. The officer looked bewildered and said nothing. Aunt Fanny was speechless. Later on, when the lieutenant had gone ahead to confer with the guides about the suspicious actions of a small troop of horsemen they had seen, Beverly confided to the old negress that she was frightened almost out of her boots, but that she'd die before the men should see a sign of cowardice in a Calhoun. Aunt Fanny was not so proud and imperious. It was with difficulty that her high-strung young mistress suppressed the wails that long had been under restraint in Aunt Fanny's huge and turbulent bosom. "'Good Lord, Miss Beverly, they'll chop us all to pieces and take our jewelry and money and clothes and everything else we done got about us. Good Lord, let's turn back, Miss Beverly. We ain't got no more show out here in these mountains than a be still, Aunt Fanny, commanded Beverly, with a fine show of courage. You must be brave. Don't you see we can't turn back? It's just as dangerous, and a heap slight more so. If we let on, we're not one bit afraid, they'll respect us, don't you see? And men never harm women whom they respect. Umph, grunted Aunt Fanny, with exaggerated irony. Well, they never do, maintained Beverly, who was not at all sure about it. And they look like real nice men, honest men, even though they have such awful whiskers. Days de worst trash I ever did see, exploded Aunt Fanny. Shh, don't let them hear you, whispered Beverly. In spite of her terror and perplexity, she was compelled to smile. It was also like the farce comedies one sees at the theater. As the officer rode up, his face was pale in the shadowy light of the afternoon, and he was plainly nervous. "'What is the latest news from the front?' she inquired cheerfully. "'The men refuse to ride on,' he exclaimed. 
speaking rapidly, making it still harder for her to understand. Our advance guard has met a party of hunters from Axfain. They insist that you, the fine lady in the coach, are the Princess Yetive, returning from a secret visit to St. Petersburg, where you went to plead for assistance from the Tsar. Beverly Calhoun gasped in astonishment. It was too incredible to believe. It was actually ludicrous. She laughed heartily. How perfectly absurd! I am well aware that you are not the Princess Yetive, he continued emphatically. But what can I do? The men won't believe me. They swear they have been tricked and are panic-stricken over the situation. The hunters tell them that the Axvain authorities, fully aware of the hurried flight of the princess through these wilds, are preparing to intercept her. A large detachment of soldiers are already across the Graustark frontier. It is only a question of time before the red legs will be upon them. I have assured them that their beautiful charge is not the princess, but an American girl, and that there is no mystery about the coach and escort. All in vain. The Axfain guides already feel that their heads are on the block. While as for the Cossacks, not even my dire threats of the awful anger of the White Tsar, when he finds they have disobeyed his commands, will move them. Speak to your men once more, sir, and promise them big purses of gold when we reach Ganluk. I have no money or valuables with me, but there I can obtain plenty, said Beverly, shrewdly thinking it better that they should believe her to be without funds. The cavalcade had halted during this colloquy. All the men were ahead conversing sullenly and excitedly with much gesticulation. The driver, a stolid creature, seemingly indifferent to all that was going on, alone remained at his post. The situation, apparently dangerous, was certainly most annoying. But if Beverly could have read the mind of that silent figure on the box, she would have felt slightly relieved, for he was infinitely more anxious to proceed than even she, but from far different reasons. He was a Russian convict, who had escaped on the way to Siberia. Disguised as a coachman, he was seeking life and safety in Graustark, or any out-of-the-way place. It mattered little to him where the escort concluded to go. He was going ahead. He dared not go back. He must go on. At the end of half an hour, the officer returned. All hope had gone from his face. It is useless, he cried out. The guides refuse to proceed. See, they are going off with their countrymen. We are lost without them. I do not know what to do. We cannot go to Ganluk. I do not know the way. And the danger is great. Ah, madam, here they come. The Cossacks are going back. As he spoke, the surly mutineers were riding slowly towards the coach. Every man had his pistol on the high pommel of the saddle. Their faces wore an ugly look. As they passed the officer, one of them, pointing ahead of him with his sword, shouted savagely, Balak! It was conclusive and convincing. They were deserting her. Oh, 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 the cowards! sobbed Beverly in rage and despair. I must go on. Is it possible that even such men would leave? She was interrupted by the voice of the officer, who, raising his cap to her, commanded at the same time the driver to turn his horses and follow the escort to Balak. 
"'What is that?' demanded Beverly in alarm. From far off came the sound of firearms. A dozen shots were fired, and reverberated down through the gloomy pass ahead of the coach. "'They are fighting somewhere in the hills in front of us,' answered the now-frightened officer. Turning quickly, he saw the deserting horsemen halt, listen a minute, and then spur their horses. He cried out sharply to the driver, "'Come, there, turn around, we have no time to lose!' With a savage grin, the hitherto motionless driver hurled some insulting remark at the officer, who was already following his men, now in full flight down the road, and settling himself firmly on the seat. Taking a fresh grip of the reins, he yelled to his horses, at the same time lashing them furiously with his whip, and started the coach ahead at a fearful pace. His only thought was to get away as far as possible from the Russian officer, then deliberately desert the coach and its occupants, and take to the hills. End of chapter 3 Recording by Katie Riley April 2009